Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's uh, Kincaid and Breckenridge here. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Thanks very much for uh, downloading the iTunes version of our highlight show from our radio broadcast. Today, we had audio recording of David Suzuki comparing the oil and gas business in Alberta and Saskatchewan to slavery. We also uh, reminisced about uh, a fascinating uh, hijacking from more than 40 years ago, one that still fascinates and uh, mystifies people today, the case of D.B. Cooper. Uh, So thanks for listening and catch us uh, each day, weekdays, 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Two guys living the Alberta dream, uh, which is increasingly less dreamy these days. But, hey, we're in this together. We're going to get through this. We've been here before. This province has gone through some bad oil uh, drama in the past. We got through it. Halcyon days, and they're coming back. Now, we're going to get into a very interesting interview that David Suzuki did. Uh, Mr. Suzuki, or Dr. Suzuki, <clears throat> that zoologist, doesn't like to come on uh, this radio station, and uh, probably for some reason that he might allude to coming up in this segment. Uh, so this is an interview that he did with somebody else, uh, Evan Solomon. Now, Evan Solomon, the seasoned interviewer that he is, listens carefully to the answers that his subjects, his interview subjects, give him, and you, you will hear him not once, but several times, offer very, very mercifully and charitably an opportunity for David Suzuki to walk back this analogy that he, he chooses to make between the oil sands and slavery. And when we say slavery, we don't mean this this, this concept of slavery or, you know, the, the notion of slavery. He, he specifically refers to the slavery of the southern United States where people were stolen from their lands in Africa, brought to the New World in America, and forced to work the land for wealthy landowners. What, what this also illustrates to me is, you know, the, the the weird disconnect that exists because David Suzuki is someone who believes that that the oil sands is tantamount to slavery. That essentially the companies doing business in the oil sands are then the slave owners. That they're awful people doing an awful thing that we need to put an end to. When David Suzuki is given the chance to to respond to what Rachel Notley is doing in Alberta through, through the carbon tax plan, he's very excited about it. Well, isn't it interesting that those same oil companies that are the modern equivalent of the old uh, slave owners are also excited about this plan? Um, so I, I, you know, to me, I, I, I find that very curious, uh, that we've got a government that maintains that they're developing a carbon tax plan that will help industry, allow industry to grow, keep the industry strong in Alberta. And the guy who thinks that that industry is equivalent to slavery is jacked about this plan. He's really now tell me your reaction. Sorry, buddy. I, I, accidentally fired there on him getting really excited about this uh, this plan. So you got excited. Yeah, I got excited. Well, here, here's well, David know. Suzuki getting excited about it. Now, tell me your reaction quickly. Let's start with Rachel Notley in Alberta. Go, girl, go. It's terrific. The go, girl, go, which is not <laughs> what Southern slave owners said to Abraham Lincoln. Instead, they waged <laughs> civil war. Go, girl, go. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that's interesting terminology, isn't it? I suspect if somebody else were to refer to uh, Rachel Notley as a, a girl, what's with that girl and her carbon tax? Um, people might take issue with that. I guess he gets a pass on these things. Uh, yeah, well, he's above her, right? Well, he's been accused of, of sexism in the past, but he's St. Suzuki after all, so... You can call Rachel Notley whatever he wants. That's, I guess. Yeah, that's the problem is that David Suzuki is on this uh, plane all to himself where, uh, you know, the laws uh, of economics and science and whatnot, they, they don't apply to him. Like da- David Suzuki gets to say certain things and for some reason it's it's forgiven. Um, and and he, he also has a, a remarkably simplistic view of this debate, of this conversation. Whereas anybody who opposes his his idea or his version of climate change is is an, is evil is a horrible is uh, either a slave owner or some uh, some some terrible talk show host. I remember going into Alberta debating whether climate change was real and whether we could afford to do anything. I mean, you have scurrilous. Uh, uh, online people like David Rutherford there that were just demonizing anybody to say that climate change was real. Okay. Well, or, or, you know, providing an argument against it is what we would call that on this uh, side of the debate, uh, uh, Mr. Suzuki. Well, it's just so rich. And, and I wrote about this before. I mean, uh, David Suzuki loves to, to, uh, you know, talk about the, the science being settled and, uh, how dare people deny the, the science and deny the scientific consensus. When it comes to genetically modified foods, David Suzuki is as bad as anybody. Uh, that he does the exact opposite of what he advocates. He is a denier of the science. He is going against the international scientific consensus. Uh, so David Suzuki, for all his talk about those awful deniers, when it comes to other forms of science, he's just as bad. He is a denier of, of another kind. So he's got no right to run around and, uh, and denounce deniers of other science. See, if I could talk to David Suzuki, this is this is what I would say. I w- I'd say to him this. I would say, I believe in climate change, Dave. Uh, but do I believe it to the doomsday extent that you do? No. Let me explain it to you this way. I believe that when I get into my bed at night, the sheets are cold. But by my presence over time, they warm up. And that's because whenever you interact in an, in an environment, you alter it in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, does a whole bunch of humans giving off heat on the ground, does that contribute to climate change? Yeah, but so does the sun shining on the planet. So am I terrified in this doomsday sense of climate change as you are? No, I'm not. And that's why I can't explain to my fellow Albertans why we should go through this tremendous degree of economic upheaval just to pacify the Suzukians of this country. And and, and when I get behind Rachel Notley's climate change plan or carbon tax plan, you got to understand that I'm one of these people who's not getting behind Rachel Notley. I'm getting behind all the oil and gas executives who believe that this is going to make their industry more saleable, more profitable, more able to employ more Albertans in this province. Do I want to pay carbon tax? No, I don't want to pay carbon tax. There's a whole fleet of taxes that I don't want to pay to the NDP. But do I want to see my uh, my neighbors, my fellow Calgarians employed in the oil patch? Yeah. And if oil bigwigs like Murray Edwards say, hey, this is how we're going to get it done, I'm on board. Well, look, I mean, uh, even Justin Trudeau 
called David uh, Suzuki's uh, thoughts and, and ideas on the environment sanctimonious crap. <laughs> That's coming from Trudeau. That's coming from Justin <laughs> Trudeau, of all people. And then did, Suzuki called him a twerp, I think, in response. I don't know. Apparently they had quite the heated conversation. But it, it's he's, he's not a realistic person. Yeah. That's the problem. He's, he's living in a fantasy world, uh, and nothing he suggests is, is reasonable, I think, in terms of implementing policy in Canada. And so that's fine. And I, I don't get the sense in that he has much influence that way. I mean, he can cheer on uh, Rachel Notley all he wants. I don't think Rachel Notley's listening to him. I don't think Justin Trudeau's listening to him. You want to hear the main event here? Oh, let's do it. Okay, David Suzuki comparing uh, oil sands and energy development in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, for that matter, uh, to slavery. Here we go. It sounds very much to me like the southern states argued in the 19th century that to, to eliminate slavery would destroy their economy. It did. It transformed their economy, but they took a big hit. But who would say today that the economy should have come before slavery? Okay. <laughs> that's the start of it. So that's his response to Brad Wall's comments that, look, if we're going to go through a, a, a climate chain, a climate strategy, we got to do it in a way that preserves the economy because, after all, uh, people in his province, they like things like roads. Uh, hospitals, schools, these are things that we've grown accustomed to in our Canadian society. So if you want to take away industry that feeds into a lot of this stuff, pays for the bills in a lot of ways, uh, you got to be careful. You be careful what you wish for. So I don't think that, that um, those slave owners in the South, when Abe Lincoln said, that we're going to uh, make that illegal, I don't think that they were going out there going, hey, wait, wait, whoa, wait a second. There are children who have food to eat because we are slave owners. <laughs> no one was doing that. Um, well, and, and I mean, I don't. <laughs> the, the, the stupidity of it speaks for itself. Yeah. There, there's no point in, in trying to make the case because I, I think it speaks for itself. It's obviously not even remotely comparable. Uh, certainly the industry, as we see now, with their support of what Rachel Notley is doing, they want to be a part of a solution. Canada can responsibly uh, develop its natural resources uh, and can still play a role in addressing these environmental challenges we face. We can do both. Uh, we don't have to, to sabotage our, our economy in, in doing so. And, and what David Suzuki advocates would be essentially that, sabotaging our economy. So, yes, it matters to talk about the economy. You can't take the economy out of the equation. Yeah, it's easy for David Suzuki to say that because obviously he's very financially secure. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about sabotaging his wealth. <laughs> let's uh, let's continue. You're equating the oil industry to slavery there, and they might take real offense to that. Well, it is the same thing. They're <laughs> destroying the very atmosphere that we depend on, and this they're telling us their existence or their activity shouldn't come under scrutiny and be impacted when their activity is creating the problem. I keep telling the fossil fuel industry, whoever will listen to me, which isn't many, you're an energy industry. You're not a, an oil industry. You're an energy industry. I'm not sure why they won't listen to him. I can't. I can't put my finger on it. He keeps telling them that what they're doing is tantamount to slavery. And I just can't understand why I won't get an audience with these people. <laughs> these people who care so deeply about their employees that they find efficiencies in the company so they can take pay cuts so that they don't have to fire people in every circumstance. <laughs> it's just absurd. There's more. Right. Uh, but and, boy, you look, know, to compare it, it to slavery is You're not... damn right I do. You're damn right I <laughs> do. We're talking about the very atmosphere that sustains our lives and survival. 
That's twice that Evan Solomon said. Are you sure you want to do this, Dave? I mean, you got a chance to pull it back here. Well, that, that's how he that's how he does things. That, that's the the right. Uh, but and, boy, you know, do you com- sorry. Well, let's hear. Let's hear two more. Okay. Here. Right. Uh, but and, boy, you know, do you compare it, it to slavery? Is you're not- damn right I do. You're you're damn right I do. He's proud of this. He, he, he thinks that this is a, a, a rational argument. He thinks this, this is a compelling argument, and obviously, he thinks it's a, a valid parallel. Yeah, it's it's absurd. I mean, and I mean, if only Evan Solomon at some point would explain it to him and say, look, Dave, all I'm trying to do here, if you really want to double down on this idea that the oil sands is the same as slavery, I just want to give if only Evan would give him a chance, tell him I'm just trying to give you an opportunity to put some nuance on that. I mean, I I, I just want to give you a chance to kind of uh you know, put some nuance on that one. Well, it's a moral issue, and that's all I'm saying. The issue of slavery was not an economic issue. The issue of climate change is not an economic issue. The economic consequences of acting on it are going to be immense. But it's, I'm with the Pope, and, and as you know, I'm an atheist. Okay. Uh, by the way, I just... As an atheist, Rob, I'm going to need you to apologize for uh, David uh, Suzuki's behavior. <laughs> yes, we happily uh, disown him. He's uh, excommunicated <laughs> from from our church. <laughs> let's let's take a pause here. We'll, we'll come back. Let that sink in. And if you've got some comments, nine seven four eight two five five. I'm sure many of you do. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk seven seventy. All right, 974-8255. Uh, that's the number to reach us here, Kincaid and Breckenridge. Uh, let's go to the phones. George, good morning. Good morning. Hi, George. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. George, are you with us? We're hmm. going to send a search party right, out for let's George. Let's put George right back on hold. Uh, let's try uh, Steve. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, uh, you know, Suzuki lives a, lives a very uh, affluent uh, life. Um, he's got... He's a very wealthy man. Um, he's, he really contradicts himself in a lot of things that he does. Um, I remember seeing a documentary he did. Um, he has a, 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 quite a light, large home on Salt Spring Island, I think it was. And he and his daughter did this documentary and flew around the world and, and uh, you know, pointing out you know, energy efficiencies of different countries. But anyhow, in this one particular documentary, it shows him near his home on the island, uh, um, wading into the waters in the ocean, picking out sea cucumbers and, you know, um, getting all this wonderful, um, you know, food from the ocean. It just struck me as really odd that, you know, someone that's into saving the environment and, and the oceans, that he would, you know, just revel in this. this eating wonderful, it. Yeah. Stop eating the environment if you love it so much. <laughs> and it was really odd because, you know, like if, if we all went, you know, and did that, there would be an outcry on his behalf that, you know, we're, we're depleting the oceans, but it's okay for him to do it. It was really odd. Um, it's really hard to take that guy seriously. Yeah, no, it really is, Stephen. And I sort of wonder, like, you're right, he's got this coastal home, right? I think he can walk outside and, and uh, he's 10 paces from the ocean or something to that effect. And I, I look at that and I say, now, let's take this this climate worry to an extreme and say, look, Canada is at risk. We've got so much coastline. Henceforth, it is illegal mm-hmm. to live uh, within 100, uh, within, uh, uh, say, 500 meters of of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And there's no compensation for this. You just simply cannot live in these homes anymore. 
Well, I've even heard him say that. Well, that would come, hang on a second, that would come at economic consequence to David Suzuki, and I wonder if he would tolerate that. No, no, no. If he would say, you're right, you know, we've got to do this because it's for the good of the environment, or would he suggest that because he is out of pocket for this particular piece of property, that he should somehow be compensated or just be allowed to uh, continue living in that home at his own peril? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've heard him say that by 2000, uh, 2050, the oceans could be um, decimated um, with the, uh, sea, uh, the fish in the ocean. So uh, for him to do a, a documentary to show his affluence and to be able to go and, and, and pick from the ocean these wonderful delicacies is really very absurd. Mm-hmm. Thanks, yeah. Stephen, appreciate that. You know, it's in, I read a book once called The Rational Optimist, and whenever I think of, of David Suzuki, I, I, like, I think of him as an irrational pessimist. <laughs> right. He's kind of the opposite of that. Um, you know, David Suzuki's the kind of guy, and he's, he's said this in speeches before, and he thinks back to when he was a child, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, and how wonderful things were, how, how clean the environment was. You just, you go out and you would just hug the grass and you just drink the water, and it was just wonderful, right? And I mean, the reality is the exact opposite. I mean, 50 years ago, 56 years ago, uh, we had massive problems of, with starvation that we fixed uh we had uh, much dirtier then than we have now um you know th- th- we've made m- incredible improvements and advances i mean far fewer david suzuki acts like uh, you know cancer didn't exist uh 40 50 years ago the fact is we're saving far more lives today than ever i mean the, the world is so much better in so many ways from when david suzuki was a child and yet he can't he can't see that uh, and, and so that's why I, I say he's an irrational pessimist, because he only sees the bad, and he's got these rose-colored glasses when he looks at the past that prevents him from seeing what was bad, what was far worse then. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, to me, is just another reason why he's, he's not to be taken seriously. Oh, that you needed more reasons than just this? The time he said this? Right, uh, but and, boy, you look, know, to compare it, it to slavery is you're not... You're damn right I do. You're... <laughs> you know, in a time of slavery, they didn't have... Uh, there weren't many automobiles rolling around the South, or uh, any of America for that matter. And I would argue to you that pollution was significantly worse then, although it was a different kind of pollution altogether. All the horse urine and feces and even the dead horse carcasses lining the streets of major cities. You know, the advent of the automobile cured us a lot of, of a lot of that, and a lot of the environment mental problems of having to care for that much livestock and livery. But I'll, I'll tell you something else. I mean, when you freed up all that land for human food instead of just the food for the horses, uh, you, you freed up uh, places for people to live so that they wouldn't have to commute nearly as far to get the places that they had to go. And when they started driving these uh, these cars and these leaded gasoline cars, it didn't take us long to realize that, hey, uh, essence sans plomb is better. We don't need the lead in the gasoline. So what did oil companies do and refineries do? They found ways to take the lead out. You should be rooting mm-hmm for the automotive industry. The automotive industry has been the key to progress in so many aspects of our lives that if we follow it to its logical conclusion, they'll get us out of the mess that David Suzuki claims that we're in. All right. I think we got George uh, back with us here. George, go ahead. Hi. If Suzuki is going to call us or make us a king of slavery. You know what? Uh, George bailed on us again. That's too bad. Uh, We'll put him on hold. Patrick, maybe you can uh, sort that out for us. We'll get to Paul here. (laughs) Hi, Paul. How are you today? Are you calling to talk about? uh, Are you calling to talk about David Suzuki? Yeah, I wonder how we'd feel. Uh, It's probably the worst kept secret that oil is uh, not a fossil fuel, but the Earth uh, produces it naturally. And a lot of scientists believe that now. Uh, Some do. It's not coming from dead dinosaurs. Um. 
that's that's a bit more of a fringe theory, I think. I don't think so. I think uh, the most Russian scientists believe. I've seen a, a few programs on it, books on it. Okay, I mean, well, even if it were true, below, even if it were way, true, way below where dead dinosaurs. No, okay, were. all right. Well, hang on. A second. Okay, let's let's pretend for a moment that's true. What, I mean, no, we're pretending. <laughs> no, okay, but what what would that change? Well, uh, he likes to keep uh, talking about. Well, it would make him very upset because. It, we'd never get rid of it. <laughs> well, whether I mean, it's know, whether I, the Earth I, produces it, whether it's dead dinosaurs, it's wells that were capped, <laughs> and they, you know, they're reusing them again. There was one in California that was like drilled in the thirties, yeah, and me, it's producing more now than it was then. Sure, but Paul, okay, here, that's fine. Here's the point that I think Rob's making, though. Now, if if all of a sudden that we recognize that hey, oil is not the product of dead dinosaur bones, it's something that the Earth produces naturally in yeah. the same way that a tree produces apples. Um, then we we got to say, well, what's the difference of it coming out of the tailpipe of the car? So now are we to understand that there's not oh, yeah. greenhouse gases coming from this oil? Yeah, well, I like Greenland was green at one time, right? I mean, that's really not uh, an answer to the question, though. I mean, like Paul, I'm willing to I'm willing to go down this road with you about how the the oil is produced naturally, but does that change the the, the chemical composition of it when it's combusted? Uh, no, it just upsets Suzuki, and that's good. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I don't know that it would. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's interesting because I think David Suzuki's uh, been one of the peak oil people over the years. I don't think he talks much about that anymore because I think anybody who would talk about peak oil looks pretty foolish these days. Um, and I think a lot of people wonder, well, why didn't we run out of oil? Maybe there's, you know, something else going on. I think it's just human ingenuity. But so Paul's point is kind of moot, though, as you as you say. I mean, if we're burning oil, that does something to the atmosphere, whether that's naturally occurring oil or it's leftover from uh, from creatures that once existed. It's it's kind of a moot point. Let's get uh, Art's call in here to wrap things up. Uh, hi, Art, real quickly, if you could. Yeah, real quick, two things. David Suzuki is the main reason we shouldn't legalize pot. <laughs> I think he's got too much of it. And number two, I lived in California in the '80s when the spotted owl thing was going on. There was a guy there. We nicknamed him Flea Face. He was uh, spreading rumors that we were logging the last of the trees on, in the California. And the guy had raw sewage running through the basement of his house. The health people were so afraid to go over there and do anything about it because of who he was. And all these guys are the same. Suzuki's the same way, living on the edge of the ocean, picking the stuff out of the ocean, right? Yeah. Hey, thanks, Art. Thanks for the phone call. Okay. All right, bye. take care. Uh, that's all the time we have in this half hour. Uh, but certainly there's a lot to say about it. And the clips, the sound clips are just outrageous from David Suzuki claiming that uh, the oil sands are the same as slavery. So we're going to have an open phone segment uh, for you at 12 noon today, 974-8255. All right. Coming up to uh, 1130, we're going to revisit the mystery of D.B. Cooper, one of the most infamous uh, airplane hijackings of all time. It was uh, 44 years ago yesterday. And some new thoughts about who that might have been. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. Right, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. That was the voice of Walter Cronkite uh, 44 years ago today. In fact, that news story aired. Uh, talking about a, a hijacking that occurred the previous day and uh, a case that became known as the D.B. Cooper case. One, one of the odd quirks about this story is that you, know, you heard Walter Cronkite say D.A. Cooper. Yeah. And I think it was Dan Cooper. 
was the name he gave, but just kind of became it sort of morphed into D.B. Cooper, which just sounds more mysterious, I it think. It really does. Dan Cooper just sounds like just a, a guy you work with. But this you is know, Dan Cooper from accounting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I hang with uh, Mr. Cooper all the time. <laughs> Where's D.B. Cooper? That's, uh, that's a mysterious name. Who? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Who? Who was D.B. Cooper? Somebody pulled this off. Somebody got on a plane. Somebody gave a stewardess a, a handwritten note. Somebody uh, got $200,000 uh, in a suitcase, and somebody jumped out of a plane. And then and then what? Well, we don't know. And that, I think that's why it intrigues people to this day. Oh, that yeah. This guy could have got away with it. It might have spent uh, the last 40-some years uh, you know, living it up and telling people the stories and laughing at what he accomplished. Now, the story of D.B. Cooper <laughs> makes uh, some t- weird twists and turns as time uh, goes by. So let's get to our guest here. Ross Richardson joins us now, author, researcher, who wrote the book Still Missing, Rethinking the D.B. Cooper Case. Ross, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Well, yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for for your time. I mean, this is fascinating. As Rob put it, and maybe we can go through it step by step a little bit with what we know, but we've got this Dan Cooper character who gets on the plane, says, a a bourbon and soda, please. Oh, by the way, I've got a bomb, and here's what we're going to do. Yes, yes, that's that's one of the very few things we know about him. We, We really don't know a lot about this person, the suspect. Uh, we do have some interactions. We do have some pretty vague descriptions of him, but we really don't know much beyond that, such as his parachuting ability, um, his his place of origin, or anything really. Right, Quite and a that, mystery. Yeah, it it really is. We've got this uh, infamous uh, police sketch uh, that that's a pretty detailed police sketch, and we we can use it to try to compare that to. Maybe suspects that might come to, to mind over the years or might come to light over the years. But what's interesting about your, your connection to the story, Roz, I mean, you're, you're based in Michigan. You've written a lot of books about uh, unsolved crimes and, and mysteries in, in your neck of the woods. Um, so what got you on to the D.B. Cooper case? Well, I, I was really intrigued with the story of Robert Richard Lebsey. His car was found in the airport not far from my home. And so I started researching it a little bit. And there was so little information out there about his story that I was really, I was really kind of perplexed on how it was going to handle it. But when I was pulling microfilm at the library from the local papers about his disappearance, which there was no articles about his disappearance, on the front page of every paper were stories of hijackings. And I thought to myself, wasn't there somebody who got away with a hijacking at one time, and then I put it in my notes, you know, I, I remember D.B. Cooper. And, you know, check out check that story out a little further, I put in my notes. So it wasn't until six months later that I said, okay, there's some similarities here, but the, the deeper I started to dig, the more I realized that really this is the type of person the FBI was originally interested in a missing person who fit the physical description given by the stewardesses who spent the most time with him. Right. I mean, so the D.B. Cooper story is one where, you know, it's a routine flight. I think it was a Northwest Airlines plane from Portland to Seattle. And shortly after they took off, he said, look, I got a bomb and here's what we're going to do. We'll get to Seattle. Give me 200 grand and four parachutes. And so they marked all the bills like the or not marked, but the, they, they registered the serial numbers. These were uh, bills that they, that they knew uh, about in case they turned up somewhere else. 
and then um, they flew off and headed towards Mexico. He bailed out somewhere near Reno, Nevada. But the FBI launched an investigation almost immediately. The question I have is, did they turn up any backstory on who a Dan Cooper might have been? Well, they they had over a thousand suspects that they checked into originally and dismissed all but a few suspects, you know, that were just totally, no way this could be the person. And they really didn't think the, the remainder of the suspects were the were the right person anyway. And after doing a little more investigating, the FBI stance is that the skyjacker died in the jump. The skyjacker did not survive the jump. And so that really narrows it down. Uh, over the years, there's been a, a, quite a few suspects paraded before us, but none really fit the physical description on all points. They were always something a little off, whether it be blue eyes or their height, they were too short. They just didn't fit the description of what people saw. So really the FBI has, they say it's an open case, but they are not actively investigating the case or really following up on anything or commenting on anything at this point. All right. So let's let's go back to, to, to your guy in Michigan, because regardless of whether this has anything to do with D.B. Cooper, it's just a, a really, really weird case. Uh, Dick Lepsey, as he's known, uh, so just uh, up and vanishes one day. And this was, uh, what, in, in 69 that he disappeared? Fall of 1969. Fall of 1969. Uh, but yet it, it was never treated as, as a crime. There was never any indication that he'd been kidnapped or murdered or anything like that, right? Uh, no, no. And it wasn't until recently when I started interviewing some of his coworkers and uh, some of his family that they all kind of look back and say, you know, it, it's kind of strange that he never got in touch with us. We think foul play could be involved. Uh, when he when he disappeared, and the reason he was never looked at as a missing person was uh, $2,000 disappeared from the state, from the company uh, that employed him. He was a grocery store manager. So he left one day for afternoon uh, for lunch and never came back. And when they did an audit of the state, there was $2,000 missing. So when they went to the airport where his car was found, they talked to the ticket agents, and they said, yes, a gentleman fitting that description bought uh, bought a ticket with a final destination of Mexico. So he was considered somebody who just ran off. And so the police would not accept him as a missing person because he left voluntarily. Right. Okay, so a guy who leaves under suspicious circumstances, a guy who looks eerily like the D.P. Uh, the D.B. Cooper composite sketch, but... Those are, could be just coincidences, right? I mean, in, in order to make a compelling Absolutely. argument that this guy could be D.B. Cooper, what, what more stands out to you about the, these connections? Well, I think, th I think at this point in time, 40 years after the event, the only way we're going to get closure is if perhaps one of the stewardesses takes a good look at the photos of Robert Richard Lebsey and, and gives us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Mm -hmm. Really, at this point, there is no connection other than the similarity in looks. And perhaps you could say, okay, well, Robert Richard Lebsey took somebody else's money and he used an aircraft to, to escape. You could say he has a history of doing that. But there's really nothing that connects him to this. But there's nothing that connects anybody to the D.B. Cooper case. Well, no, exactly. There was one other way. There's another weird part of this story, though. And, and it was uh, like years later, I think it was uh, the early 90s. And and uh, Dick Lebsey's daughter 
got a very weird visit from somebody. Yes, the men in black. All right, tell us about that. Strange, I heard that, and that was uh, very strange. So she had a a relative that worked in a hospital and had the ability to run uh, a credit check on somebody. So she asked this person to gave this person her father's social security number and said, hey, can you do a check on this and see if his social security's ever been accessed? Well, this person did and nothing. There was nothing. And this was about, uh, yeah, you're right, around right around 1990, somewhere within, within a few years. So this person ran a check and there was absolutely no activity of any kind on the social security number or using that name. Well, a few days later, a couple gentlemen in suits appeared at uh, the daughter's door, Lisa Lepsey's door. And immediately said, have you found your father? And she was kind of taken aback. And she said, no, have, have you found my father? And they said, no, no, we just uh, heard you're looking for your father. We want to know if you found him. So they pretty much intimidated her and talked to her and tried to make sure one was si- sat back and sized her up while the other kind of uh, poked her with questions. And she said, well, hey, what, well, where are you guys from? And they said, oh, we're from the insurance company. You know, here's our card. If you hear anything about your father, please let us know. Well, a couple weeks passed, and she ended up calling John Hancock Insurance Company and saying, hey, I had a couple agents here. It was very, very strange. Well, they took the information, and they got back with her a couple days later and said, yes, we don't, we don't have agents of that name nor that department of the card they gave you. So very strange, <laughs> especially since the uh, – the statute of limitations had run out for the insurance payoff. So what would they be doing there investigating anyway? It doesn't make any sense from a business standpoint, but it's just another one of those strange twists in this case that makes you wonder, you know, what's going on here. Speaking with author and researcher uh, Ross Richardson, uh, talking about uh, the D.B. Cooper case and uh, a story that Ross was investigating in Michigan that kind of led him to this, this infamous hijacking. Ross, in the process of going through this, have you you looked much into the other names that have come up over the years uh, that people have suggested might have been D.B. Cooper and how Dick Lebsey stacks up against them? Uh, Yes, pretty much all of them. Physically, he matches the suspect's description uh, the best out of all the the suspects that have been brought forth so far. Uh, Another thing is, The FBI believes the skyjacking suspect did not survive the jump. So if they're alive after the jump, that kind of tells you something, too. Mm -hmm. And each suspect is pretty good. That's been brought forward over the years. Their story's pretty good, and you can kind of see. But when you hold all 10 or 12 of them together and then look at them as a group of people, you see, hey, there's interesting people. They usually have a suspect promoter that's been out there kind of pushing their, their person along but there's really nothing to connect them to the case. And the FBI has officially dismissed most of those suspects. You can go right to the FBI's uh, official website about the Cooper case and see names of the suspects they have dismissed. Is there anything that in your investigation, Ross, that has led you to be able to eliminate uh, Dick from uh, as D.B. Cooper? That's the one thing I have not been able to find. And usually other suspects, you can find something like height, eye color, something. I have not been able to find that silver bullet that eliminates him as a suspect. 
What about the jump itself? Because I think in, in, in trying to n- nail down a suspect, a lot of people have assumed that whoever D.B. Cooper was, he was somebody experienced at jumping out of airplanes, you know, with maybe a military background, for example. Um, but w- what do you make of that? Because it doesn't seem that there's anything in Dick, Le- Dick Lepsey's background that suggests that he was inclined to, to go parachuting out of airplanes. But does that necessarily exclude him? The FBI's position is the parachutist did not have extensive parachuting knowledge and or skydiving knowledge and wasn't an experienced skydiver because of the shoots he selected and because of the conditions he jumped into. They just don't think he had a firm grasp on what was going on. He might have been able to get the parachute uh, rig on. But that's about it. They really don't think he had an extensive uh, knowledge of skydiving. Otherwise, he never would have jumped out of that plane into those conditions, nor picked the shoots that he did. Hmm. Um, the money now, the $200,000 in, uh, in $20 bills, uh, a lot of that money has turned up. There was a, a kid who found a batch of it when he was uh, on a camping trip along the Columbia River with his family, and it led to a whole lot of searchers in that area. Uh, does that give us indications that someone definitely did survive that fall, or, or what's your take on that? Well, it's very interesting. It's been played both ways, and I think there was an early inve- an early hydrologist looked at it, um, Dr. Palmer, and said he thought it wasn't part of the original dredging layer, and then the citizen sleuths came back. Boy, it would be 20 years after the discovery, and then added more controversy by saying where the money was found, and they're their findings are are kind of hard to interpret. Uh, for me, and I'm just a little bit of my uh, uh, background, I'm a public safety diver for our sheriff's department in our county, so I've had some experience with things underwater, things in rivers, things like that. And the where the money was found and how it was found, to me, I think it sat on the bottom of the river for a while until it was dredged and thrown up on the banks. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely doesn't make any sense that somebody would plant the money there in such a remote location, and there would be no reason to do it. And the fact that there were, the money was all together, like it was in the money bag, tells me that it wasn't moved or distributed in any way. That money stayed that way from the night of the jump. Yeah, right, because so the, the money wasn't spent, was it? There was never money spent. Well, not that we know. There was no indication it was, but even if it was, I don't think they would have found it. They had the all the serial numbers, all the money was photographed, and there was a book that was handed out to banks in the Pacific Northwest to look out for these twenties. But that search was abandoned within a few days. I mean, it was just too laborious. Right. Uh, serial numbers weren't in order, so there's so the money could have been spent but there's no indication that it ever was and the fact that it was found in the bank of a river in that deteriorated condition nine years later leads me to believe that money ended up in the river the night of the jump and if the money ended up there the skyjacker probably did too all right, Ross, we got to leave it there. Uh, folks can uh, find out more uh, on your research uh, and your book at michiganmysteries.com really appreciate you make some time for us here today thanks for this Hey, thanks so much. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. All right. Appreciate it, Ross. You too. Uh, we'll, we'll try. Yeah. We'll try. Hey, you know, it? I do yeah. have it. I really enjoy American Thanksgiving, college football fan. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, Thank no, we're, we're stuck with metric Thanksgiving, but, you know, we make the most of it. <laughs> anyway, michiganmysteries.com is, is his website. Uh, let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, some more thoughts on this. We'll set up our final segment as well. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.